Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I did not expect, when we were going through the Thatcherite revolution, to end up in a world where returns to work had fallen and returns to inheritance had increased. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Lord David Willits has been an intellectual titan on the centre-right for the past 30 years. Having worked in Margaret Thatcher's policy unit, Willits was an MP between 1992 and 2015 and served as a cabinet minister in the coalition government. He's now president of the independent think tank The Resolution Foundation and the author of a number of books, including The Pinch, How Baby Boomers Took Their Children's Future and Why They Should Give It Back. The book caused quite a stir on publication in 2010, but its thesis has proved remarkably prescient in the years since. So, to mark the release of the second edition, our deputy editor Frank Lawton sat down with Lord Willits to discuss the broken social contract and how to fix it. Frank began by asking him when, as a baby boomer himself, he first realised he was to blame for everything. Well, the moment of truth for me as a, as a baby boomer was, was early in this millennium, and it was, it was first of all... When I was a constituency MP, having all these young people coming to my surgery, and you know, he'd be working at Tesco's and she'd be a nurse, and they'd have a baby, but they'd be camping in the spare room of his parents' house because yes. they couldn't get anywhere to live. Uh, and then you'd go to a residence association meeting of good people, decent people, but basically protesting about any housing development in the area. So it got, that got me thinking about how one can actually win the case that we did need to build more houses for younger mm. people. Um, and then it combined with the fact that in my uh, long years in the shadow cabinet, I first of all shadowed pensions and then shadowed education. Yep. So that gets you thinking about the way in which we provide public finance for people at different stages of the life cycle. And then third and finally, my own kids, you know, thinking, my wife saying to me, how are our kids ever going to get started on the housing ladder? Yes. So it was a combination of things. So this, this problem then, which you outline in, in the pinch, is precisely what? It's that the intergenerational contract, as you put it, has been broken. It's been broken by the baby boomers. Yes. I mean, the, the argument is that conventionally, if you ask people, would you rather be born in a big cohort or a small cohort? Would you rather have lots of people around you of your age or a smaller number? The obvious answer was, I think we'd rather be in a small cohort, please, because mm. you think you're going to travel through life business class, not economy yes. class, yes, bit not more much, space. Not much competition. Less competition in the jobs market, less competition in the housing market. 
But increasingly it came clear to me that actually the big generation of the baby boomers, born between 1945 and 1965 roughly, we, being a big generation, had worked to our advantage. We were shaping the marketplace because we're all the consumers. That's why the Rolling Stones are still on tour and you can get, <laughs> still get a mini. Yep. Um, and we're also a big voting block. So we could shape politics in our interest. So I was increasingly worried that the very size of the boomers was a reason why the smaller generations after us were having a rough deal. Has this happened before then, sort of disproportionately large generations, obviously not in in exactly the same numbers, but relatively? Well, there's been a history of some of the great um, thinkers, uh, Auguste Comte, um, Richard Eastlin, great contemporary demographer, wrestling with this issue but i think it is a it is a relatively modern phenomenon and it, it arises when you have a modern market economy where consumer power matters mm. and a modern welfare state where voting power matters so i think it's a it's a modern phenomenon uh, and by the way i should make clear i don't think we baby boomers have deliberately plotted to do down our kids. Mm. Though if you look at the evidence, you could imagine why people right. would assume we had. But it's just happened because we weren't thinking of the long-term impact of a lot of the decisions we were taking, including turning up at protest meetings to object to new houses being built. So this is also, I suppose, about the standard of living, isn't it, which, which housing costs are a part of, but it's, it's much more than that. What do you, how do you respond then to the... Those baby boomers who might argue that, well, okay, that housing costs are a problem for young kids, but we baby boomers may well have grown up in the era of rationing. We now pay a high degree of the taxes in the country. We may look after our parents because of the state of social care, and we also help fund our kids because of those high uh, housing costs. How are we to blame because we're doing all of these things? Now kids can you know, uh, have the whole world on a smartphone in their pocket at the age of 10. Yeah, well, I mean, well, first of all, of course, the wheels of modern business capitalism have not stopped turning. There are, there's going to be, there are continuing and fantastic innovations yes. of which, you know, the mobile phone is very significant. Though, incidentally, it does look as if the older affluent boomers are using these modern digital services at least as much as the youngsters mm. are. And also, this is not a new process. I mean, uh, every generation in the modern world enjoys technological advances ahead of their predecessors. Look, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a boomer. I can remember the first TV arriving in my parents' house and yes. enjoying TV as a child when, for my parents, for them in their youth, it had been the arrival of radio. And yes. So, of course, this keeps on, this keeps on the going. But the evidence, and I, and I assemble it in my book, The Pinch, is mm. that both on the income side and on the asset side, the younger generation are having a raw deal. Uh, and I can, if you like, I'll very briefly summarise the evidence on both. Go on, well, yes. I sure. mean, on, on incomes, it's the, the growth in uh, pay in the last 10 or 15 years has been incredibly modest, which means that a 30-year-old now earns no more than a 30-year-old 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. And incomes of after-housing costs have indeed been badly hit. And if you actually look at what's happened to consumption, where the consumption power is, you find that consumption amongst older people is rising. If anything, amongst younger people, it's falling. And in some ways, this is a great 
piece of social progress. But when I was starting off in social policy, when I was working at the Centre for Policy Studies, the basic assumption was pensioners were poor and that if you just provided benefits for people above a certain age, they would be pretty well targeted on poverty without having to have means tests. Now, uh, the median income, the middle pensioner, their income after housing costs, their living standards are actually higher than the middle-income working-age family. This is a massive social change. So a, a very basic question, that's a problem. Why is well, it a problem? I, I don't mind pensioners being affluent. I'm sure. not against, <laughs> no. uh, and, that, and I should I- explain, you know, in the traditions of the CPS, I'm not against people being having high incomes, I'm not against people being wealthy, and I actually don't instinctively like putting up taxes. I mean, so my mm. framework is I believe in the market economy. Um, but nevertheless, there's an awful lot of public policy that still just assumes if you are old, you are on a low income. And if you are younger or of working mm. age, you're going to be more affluent. Yes. And so, uh, you know, we have, we have in, across London, we have free travel cards for the over 60s. Yeah. 25% of journeys on over 60 travel cards are people going to work. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a whole set of assumptions. And then, just to complete the story, if you look at the asset side, the two crucial assets we build up, our house and our pension, both of them, the boomers have ended up with fantastic ownership of, of houses and pensions. And it's much harder for the younger generation to get started with either. Um, the home ownership rates... Are, peaked at 50% of people aged 25 to 34 being property owners by the end of Margaret Thatcher's time in office in the late 80s. It's now down to to 25%. A massive reversal of home ownership amongst young people. And on pensions, although they're saving, they're saving small amounts into defined contribution Mm. pensions. And they're not going to have anything like the pension entitlement of the generous company pension schemes that the older generation have. And uh, I believe in spreading property ownership. I didn't expect, having worked for Margaret Thatcher on that in the 1980s, that I would see property ownership going into reverse and property belonging to old people and it being harder for young people to build up any kind of wealth. So can we pinpoint the fact, the reasons that that has happened? Because obviously some, some of the time you hear that these problems are laid at Margaret Thatcher's door, but your argument is that actually these uh, signifiers were sort of were going well at the end of her tenure, and actually it's been since that moment that, that the decline has happened. Yeah, and I think there's, there's of course, there's several reasons, and I try to, to go through them in the book, but on housing, let's face it, we've not been building enough houses. Mm. And going back to what I used to say at those constituency meetings, I would say, look, I'm, I know where you live. It's fantastic that you're in your occupies. You, you are living in a house that was built in the 1960s or the 1970s by older generations who understood they had to house the boomers as the boomers yes. grew to adulthood. Um, if houses were built by the previous generation for you, we've got a similar obligation to build on the next door field so that the next generation have got a place to live. So housing, we restricted house building. On pensions, we regulated pensions to make the company pension promise ever more valuable, cast iron, gold-plated for the boomers. We, led, we legislated for inflation protection, for extra law rights for early leavers, for extra rights for uh, your widow or widower after you died. And look, I was part of that process. Mm. But it, had, it meant that the company pension, which used to be an intergenerational contract that you carried on from generation to generation, became a once-off special offer for a particular generation. 
And the company pension deficits, incidentally, you know, all the, the, most of them are now closed, those schemes. The deficits are being plugged by the earnings of younger workers in those companies who are earning to generate revenues to plug deficits in a pension scheme they're not even members of because they get a tiny defined contribution scheme with a, probably an employer contribution that's a fraction. So we, we didn't discharge our obligation to make sure the arrangements we were benefiting from were also available to the next generation. Mm. And that's now storing up problems for the next 10, 15, 20 years? That's going to manifest itself in... In what way, do you think? Well, uh, just to, to stick with the macroeconomics, then we'll turn yes. to what the other... So those are the specific stories on housing and on pensions. The other big change, and I think in some ways it's the most fundamental change in our economy, is the rise in the value of wealth relative to our national income and GDP. Yep. And wealth used to be about three times national income. It's now shot up to about seven times national income. And again, the, wealth, the people who are wealth owners at the time of this transformation, the boomers, have done very well out of this. But it does mean that building up wealth from your work, from your earnings, has got much harder. Mm. And the point at which that gets real, the rubber hits the road, is when someone tries to save up for a deposit for a house out of their income. And it has made inheritance more important. And I did not expect, when we were going through the Thatcherite revolution to end up in a world where returns to work had fallen and returns to inheritance had increased. Mm. That is not my picture of a mobile society. And what it means in the long term for politics is that we'll have a blocked society where increasingly um, inheriting from your parents will matter more, uh, where working hard will be less well rewarded because it isn't of itself a basis for getting either getting into a a home ownership or building up a, a decent pension. And... I just think that's not it, 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 that's not a good, open, meritocratic society. And in the long run, it will mean young people don't feel they've got a stake in our economy. And the whole point of the property and democracy is for everybody to feel they've got mm. a stake. Now, an argument that you sometimes hear against this case, if you like, or, or less maybe against it than just sort of put forward when, when we hear arguments about uh, the baby boomers and, and the millennial generations, is that... There is an assumption when we talk about this that progress is sort of inevitable and is, is a right, the idea that standard of living should always be better for the next generation. It was the Ed Miliband British dream, um, is what he tried to characterise it as. Is there a moral case for the continual improvement of uh, standards of living? That, that should be something that we're actively working towards as policymakers, or are we going to have these sort of fluctuations due to uh, the size of generations and financial crisis. And that's a really good and and deep question. My view as a believer in the power of of innovation and capitalism, and they go together, is that we would expect successive generations to be better off. We'd expect the economy to be bigger and living standards to be improving. And the attitude, the evidence of public attitudes is indeed that's what most people think. They think, Mm. by by and large, part of the deal is you live in a society where each generation is a bit better off than the one before. And there is widespread concern that we are not delivering that. Mm. Now, there are complicated reasons. If I look ahead, I think that you know, the, the climate change is another factor here. Yes, this is... uh, so things are not automatic. And again, it so happens that if we're to hold the increase in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees and look at what has to happen by way of reducing carbon dioxide emissions you find that the younger generation have to produce per person 
during their lives, one-eighth of the carbon dioxide that we baby boomers mm. have produced. It, so it's another it's, big adjustment. It sort of goes back to an old tradition, really, from Carlisle and Emerson and the Quakers, doesn't it, to the, the certain type of limiting... Uh, there are certain limits to economic growth regarding the environment and the climate in which we live, that whether that's something that's coming up on the horizon as well, which um, your first, the first edition of your book talked about but is sort of much more on the public agenda for the second edition, whether... The question of climate change and the environment is going to cause necessary, almost moral limits on the way we uh, look to grow standards of living. Yeah, I, and look, I continue to believe that growth is a good thing and it makes things possible you yeah. can do otherwise. Um, part of the origins of the n- title of the book, The Pinch, was there, there is a school of thought that both Britain and the world faces some pinch points towards the middle of the century. Mm. Um, and it's both the the one of climate change, it's access to water around the world, it's whether, partly because of climate change, there'll be mass movements of uh, migrants away, particularly uh, from Africa, which will be very heavily affected by desertification, um, whether we can shift more ra- most rapidly to, cl- to clean energy. So I do think the younger generation are going to face some big challenges, but I am fundamentally an optimist. I think human ingenuity and advances in technology and a spirit of, of community can uh, overcome these. So I'm, I remain a long-term optimist, but I do think the challenges facing the, Britain and the world over the next uh, uh, decade or two are severe. Well, let's move then to, to those solutions, to that optimism. What, what should we be doing? What should policymakers <laughs> be doing to address this? Because one thing that sort of struck me when, when, with the central thesis of the book, as you say, being the sheer size of the baby boomer generation, becoming a problem how policymakers sort of might react both to that problem now but to the idea that another generation coming along at some point that itself is very large ha- uh, would be a problem mm. in the future so how you might or whether you would even want to try and limit i suppose limit generation sizes try and equalize yep. generation sizes so that you have yeah. i mean i tend problems. to think that shifts in size of generations are um, happen for, for complicated reasons, and I think it's hard to manage that mm. kind of thing. In terms of what we could do, uh, let's start with the obvious things and gradually get into the trickier territory. Yeah. I mean, first of all, we just need to build more houses. Yeah. And the good news, again, the reason why I'm an optimist, is if you look at public attitudes to house building, uh, back in 2010, uh, only about 25% of people agreed we need to mil- build more houses in my area, which yes. is the crucial yes. bit. Uh, now that is up to 50% agreeing we need to build more houses right. in my area. Uh, and you know, it looks as if it's painful and slow, but it looks as if uh, we've got some increases in house building now. Then on pensions and the other form of property ownership, the financial asset, the good news is that auto-enrolment in pensions has extended, has reached kind of 10 million people who are now putting a bit of money into a defined contribution pot with a bit of money coming from their employer. Mm. Much less than the old company pension schemes, but nevertheless, something is happening. And I think that is a framework that uh, a government that believed in spreading property-only democracy, you could use that framework and you could do things like increase the exchequer contribution for the under-40s and expect employers to put in a bit more besides. You could make it easier for people to draw on that as a deposit for buying a house. So we've got a scheme there that could become the real core of a new form of property ownership. 
Uh, sorry, just to interject yeah. there. So we, we should be encouraging saving. Is that what, what one of the things that we ought to be doing? Because obviously in the last 10 years has been an attempt to try to encourage spending because of the financial crash, which you outline in the book, one of the causes of, one of the reasons why it was such a problem was because actually of the decline in savings. Yeah, um, yeah I, be- I believe years. in savings, and it's part of uh, becoming a property-owned democracy. Of course, again, and there are such unfair caricatures of generation sometimes. Yeah, I get a lot from boomers. Well, the problem with the young people is they're spending all their money on foreign holidays mm. and avocado toast, and if only they were saving. Uh, the evidence is, if anything, the surge in foreign holidays, the surge in eating out, just like the surge in media use, is actually amongst the affluent boomers. Yes. And the consumption amongst young people is falling. So the reason why they're not saving so much is they haven't got so much money in the first place and the companies, their employers, are putting much less in. Mm. But you could imagine using auto-enrolment as the basis for you know, a much more exciting personal ownership pot where you could have a, a, a bet greater say in deciding what shares your particular pot was invested in. As I said, you could use it for for things like a uh, uh, some of it at least, or borrow against it for a deposit to buy yep. a house, perhaps to pay for a, uh, some extra training. So there are there are use there are things you could do. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, and do, you, do you see the main political parties starting to address this question? Because a discussion we were having recently on, on, a, on a podcast was the way in which um, Labour, if they do talk about low-income voters now, talk about young low-income voters. And so, so much of their 2017 manifesto was sort of laser-focused on low-income young voters. Now, you might not agree with the, the policies that they uh, put out for those young, low-income voters. But do you think that, that we're starting to see a, a shift, a change into looking at the uh, generational question? Yeah. Well, I mean, the most obvious shift we've got at the moment is that age has become an increasingly important predictor of how you vote. Mm. And it has replaced social class. There's, there's very little class distinction now in how you vote. Both parties have, have got, appear to have a broadly similar uh, balance between people uh, from different levels of income and different class backgrounds. But Labour... Have, 
massively increased their support amongst younger voters, and the Tory party has massively increased its support amongst older voters. Yeah. And it was not always like this. I mean, people forget, as I say, I keep on, especially <laughs> as this is a link to the CPS, I keep on coming back to Margaret Thatcher and when I worked for her. When, when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister, the basic value of the, pen, of the basic state pension was cut by 5% and then only increased by prices for 15 years. Yeah. And we now have the triple lock, which is a guarantee. It'll yes. either be prices or earnings or 2.5%, whichever is the highest. Um, at the same time, she brought in and increased the value of uh, the family credit to mm. boost the incomes of low-income working families. Uh, th- those have been frozen in cash terms, cut in real terms for the last four years. So we've had a different approach from recent Conservatives to the balance of funding between young and old mm. than the one we used to have. And, and that is reflected in a shift in the balance of support for the Conservative Party. And my fear, what we mustn't do, is become the party of possession and not the party of opportunity. We've got to offer the hope for younger people that their pay can go up, they can save out their earnings, they can buy a house, they can build up a decent pension. And the biggest the biggest thing to do that would be what housing, addressing housing first, do you think, or breaking the triple lock? Or Well, I personally don't believe that the triple lock is in the long run a, a fair way of, of treating the generations, especially when you compare it with the, the real cuts. Now just, thank heavens, coming to an end in the mm. value of support for families. And, and of course, it's, it's, this, is, um, very, this is very important that we show we've got a fair generational balance. Now, there is one other angle, and this is the trickiest of the lot, um, which is my generation, the baby boomers, are a big generation, and as, we, as that big generation works its way through the life cycle, so we end up with lots of older yep. people, and we are heavy users of the NHS, and we are going to be obviously more of us claiming a pension. And when we try at Resolution Foundation to forecast what's going to happen to public spending, it looks as if just this fact of there being a lot of us will push up public spending on pensions. We can already see it significantly pushing up public spending on the NHS. And this drive... And the British state has quite an unusual shape. Compared with other OECD countries, we're a great big state... Mm on those services for older people, and we're rather a puny state yes. for many of the other things. Big on pensions do. and health, but small yeah. on other areas. Um, and I'm afraid, it's, uh, and, you know, I think it's very hard to change the healthcare entitlements of the over-60s or the pension entitlements of people when they are uh, uh, they're pensioners, and it wouldn't be desirable anyway. So that's going to push up public spending. And the question is, who, who pays for it? Of course. Yeah. And imposing that burden on younger workers... When the older people themselves are the ones with all the wealth, I think is going to be very hard to sustain politically. So if and when we have to fund these increases in public spending, and, we rec- and, we, and it looks as if it's a, a 30-year process of upward pressure, completely different from the downward pressure in Mrs. T's day when we boomers were all concentrated amongst working age people yeah. and there were fewer pensioners and fewer kids, which is why public expenditure could be held down. Um, that has to be paid for in some... And I do think that those of us who can afford it should make a contribution. Yes. And that can be reform of council tax so that high-value properties pay more. It can be ensuring there's some contribution to the costs of social care, capped, of course, learning the lessons of mm-hmm. Theresa May in 2017. A lot of this can be money that's collected from the estate on death. Yes. It doesn't need to be met out of cash income today. But we're going to need some innovative ways of making sure that out of the 
wealth that we have, we make a contribution to these services we're going to be using rather than just expecting our kids to pay for it all. Yes, and you, and you, you touched upon it there, how the shape of the British state is quite unusual. Is, is the problem that we're facing now sort of unique amongst European countries? Or are there other places that we can look to that might have gone through something similar uh, for, for succour or evidence? Yeah, I mean, we're not unique. I mean, it is... The, you can find this kind of phenomenon in some other countries... Uh, Britain has got some special features. There's no, there's no country that's gone at so rapidly from very high levels of home ownership to low levels of home ownership. Right. There are some low home ownership countries, but very few have seen the, the steep decline we've had. Mm. Um, we have got, actually, our pension system is rather more of a mix of public and private saving than some others. But our healthcare system is unusual in the extent to which it is publicly financed. Yes. Now, some people say to me, oh, well, we should reform the healthcare system and, you know, have more private finance in it and more private payment, to which I say, well, that doesn't seem to me to be where the, the politics is. Yep. Uh, but also, a change like that would be almost impossible to impose on people in their 60s and older. So you'd end up, it'd be through. yet another hit for the younger generation. Yes. You'd be telling them, oh, yes, as well as paying the taxes for the healthcare we're using, you're going to have to set some, aside some of your own money to pay for your own healthcare because you won't have any such system. So I don't think that... I don't want to put up taxes. I don't say it, do it because I sort of hate old people or hate <laughs> rich people. But my view is just being responsible about the budget position the pressures, the public spending is going to grow basically to provide public expenditure to Tory voting older people. Who are we expecting actually to pay for it? Surely not these younger workers who are currently having a raw deal compared to us. Do you think that young people should be more vocal in their displeasure about this sort of thing? Because, I mean, on the one hand, you're, you have been criticised for the question of sort of stirring intergenerational conflict. But on the other hand, you might think, well... If anything is going to change, there has to be some sort of political pressure, particularly if, if just the natural way of the, the voting cohorts are such that all people are the larger cohort, more votes are there. So do you think that young people ought to be a bit more frustrated and frustrating? I, I mean, I think, they, I think they could be more angry, but... Uh, and I tell you, there's quite a few who say they're buying a copy of my book to give to their parents for Christmas <laughs> and things like that. Um, but... In a way, the good thing is that, again, when you look at public attitudes, young people don't want their granny to be struggling to make ends meet no. or be worried about turning on their heating in a cold snap. That's, that's why, I mean, affluent pensioners is not of itself a bad thing. They care about that. It's rather, it's rather touching, actually. In fact, if anything, the generational caricatures are the, are the other way. Some of the older generation have, I think, a, a very harsh picture of young people who mm. work harder, study for longer... Um, drink, live less. Quite, drink less, live quite prudently, but also occupy less physical space now than young people used yeah. to have as part of the housing crisis, have much longer commutes, spend much longer commuting because they're places where they live are further from where they work. So uh, I, I don't want to promote intergenerational warfare, but we do as the older generation not just have a moral obligation to our kids. There are good reasons of, pro for, of prudence. There's that great American bumper sticker, be nice to your kids, they choose your nursing home. <laughs> and at some yep. point, yep, that's if we carry on treating them like this, and when we all are blithely assuming they'll happily pay the higher taxes for us when we really are very old yep. and very frail, they may not be quite so willing. Yes. I just wonder if you say blithely assume, I just wonder if people actually think about it at all, really, in those terms, that we're sort of driving towards something that 
the vast majority of people just aren't even aware of. Yeah, well, it is very peculiar. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book originally was if you look at kind of all those critiques and assessments of, of post-war Britain, and we're all aware of uh, you know, hundreds of books analysing divisions by social class yeah. or gender or ethnicity, just looking at it from the perspective of different age groups hadn't really been done. And, and yet, actually, I think it's... One of, the other, one of the reasons, really, it's, it's quite a unifying theme. I don't mm. want generational warfare. It, it's, you know, regardless of your culture, your religious beliefs, most of us want to look after our kids. They want our kids, we want our kids to have, if anything, a better life than we've had. And that fundamental promise is what we are not yeah. currently delivering. And a lot of older people are very worried about that. And there's a, it's perhaps a little uh, Piece, but there's a brilliant chapter in your in your book that looks at the nuclear family and looks at the history of, mm. of England's social and political institutions in relation to the family and to yes. the generations. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because it's a so interesting and b fits uh, so well into the conversation we've been having. Yeah, and and it is interesting. And it's sort of part of the English story in particular is that we've had small kind of nuclear families, which which were quite unusual around the world. We and. Part of what these small families meant was that we were all quite mobile. We had uh, you, it was even more likely to move jobs. This is sorry. This is even back in as far back as fourteen hundreds. Yeah, this is a this is a long standing feature. Uh, we were a relatively uh, late marriage, low birth rate, small family society. One of the peculiar things that's happening nowadays is that a lot of the um, you know, modern thinkers predicted that what would happen in the modern world is the family would be even less significant mm. and family ties would weaken. Whereas actually, one of the other arguments in the book is the opposite is happening. It looks as if um, horizontal links in families, we've got fewer siblings and cousins as family size shrinks even further. However, because people live longer... We've got, we're more likely to have our parents around for longer, more likely to know grandparents, even great-grandparents. So that the family shifts to being a, a sort of vertical bamboo pole type of institution in a society where there's increasing segregation by age. Mm. You tend to work with people the same age, partly because of the housing crisis. Neighbourhoods tend to have people of the same age. So the family becomes the main intergenerational institution. And that is part of why inheritance starts matters, mattering more. And again, when we try to understand why young people um, have lower pay, one reason is they don't move around so much. Mm. They're more likely to be living with their parents for longer. Part of the deal from the bank of mom and dad, as often there's an implicit assumption that the kids will carry on living quite close to the parents. Yep. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of intergenerational exchange. Now, some of this is very healthy, but we didn't expect the family to become more important in the modern world, and that's what's happening. Do you, do you think there's actually enough attention paid in political discourse to the idea of the family? It used to be a sort of big conservative thing, didn't it? And you, yeah. you don't hear about it as much. It's not sort of a yeah. totemic word anymore. And oddly enough, when I was um, here at the Centre for Positives, I, I uh, wrote a, a pamphlet for the CPS on family policy. I mean, it's ages ago now, back in the 1980s. But yeah, I think that the, the family does matter. Now, there is... The good news is, if anything, parents are investing more time and effort in their own kids. Mm. Uh, and you know, including, again, there's evidence in the book. Now, a working mother today devotes more time to her kids than a non-working mother did 30 years ago. It's been such a big change. Um, 
And as I say, many, much of that is a good thing. But it does mean that it does reinforce all this financial dependence. There is evidence, for example, that children who as adults, young adults, have received more financial support from their parents for longer, turn to the bank of mom and dad to get started on the housing ladder, are slightly more likely in turn to deliver care to their parents when they're older. Mm. Um, and as I said earlier, it does mean that uh, I think one reason why there's actually less tension between the generations is parents increasingly finance their kids to get started on the housing ladder. That's yeah. why it's become hereditary. And it's not a good move to argue with your banker. <laughs> and these parents, and, it, and it's not just the bank of mom and dad, it's the warehouse of mom and dad. Because yes. the parents have got all the space, the youngsters have got less space, we've got more space compared with previous generations. So all the kids' possessions stay in the parental home. This is, these are all interesting and important changes in the family, basically making the family more significant, uh, government transfers less significant for younger people, and, I have to say, making social mobility harder. Do you think that attendant to that, and, and this might draw things to a close, is the decline in trust in, in society and also in, in politics? We're in an election where trust is becoming uh, something of an issue. There seems to be a question of whether people actually trust the political system at all. You're right, and there is a decline. Part of, the, part of what's going wrong is that one of the other reasons for the growing importance of the family is, that, is the idea that other adults sort of can't be trusted mm. with your kids unless they're in a highly regulated activity like being a teacher. Um, and, I, and it is... And, of course, some of the youngsters do get pretty cynical. They don't believe that the core functions of the welfare state are going to be around for them. They mm. think it's all being taken away. The boomers are enjoying it, yep. but it won't be around for them. Now, some of that shows up in attitudes that support conservatives. So a scepticism about government, a scepticism about the welfare state, a belief you're on your own, you've got to save yourself. But it's partly driven by quite a pessimistic view that the oldsters have nabbed it and it's not going to be for us. Yep. Lord Willits, thank you. Thank you. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.